I V M. Before you listen to this episode of the Seen and the Unseen, I have a recommendation for you. Do check out Pulya Bazi, hosted by Saurabh Chandra and Pranay Kotesane, two really good friends of mine. Kickass podcast in Hindi. It's amazing. Have you heard the phrase "too much of a good thing"? Economists use a term called the Dutch disease to describe what happens to some countries when they have too much good fortune in one part of the economy because of which they slow down in others. The Economist magazine coined this phrase in 1977 in the context of the Netherlands, which had a stroke of good fortune when natural gas was discovered in Groningen in 1959. Or was it really good fortune? Because of this natural resource, foreign exchange flooded into the country, and their own currency became stronger. This meant imports became cheaper. and people could now afford the best goods from across the world as a result of this the local manufacturing sector went into decline what initially seemed like good luck later appeared to be not quite so lucky after all a classic modern case of the dutch disease is venezuela large reserves of oil were discovered there more than a century ago in 1914 and a relatively poor country suddenly sitting on humongous oil reserves became quite rich as the years went by but what this also did was that it lowered the incentives for the governments that ran the country to learn the good habits that take a nation towards prosperity there was so much oil wealth that governments quickly developed patterns of patronage and cronyism bad governance and poor economic policies did not have the cost they should have because there was always so much oil wealth floating around in a situation like this sooner or later something always has to give venezuela is now going through an enormous humanitarian crisis caused by bad economics but enabled by the bonanza of oil i'll explore some of that in this episode but before i do here's a thought does the same process by which too much of a good thing can be bad for countries can it also be bad for individuals welcome to the seen and the unseen our weekly podcast on economics politics and behavioral science please welcome your host amit varma welcome to the seen and the unseen The 19th century Venezuelan hero Simon Bolivar once said, "Quote: To understand revolutions and their participants, we must observe them at close range and judge them at great distance." Stop quote. My guest today is Alexandra Ulmer, who spent a few years studying Venezuela at close range as an oil correspondent for Reuters based in Caracas, the capital of Venezuela, but is now based in Bombay at some distance from Venezuela. I asked her to join me on the show to chat not just about Venezuela, but also the craft of news reporting as the title of this episode reporting venezuela indicates but before we begin our conversation let's take a quick commercial break like me are you someone who loves fine art but can't really afford to have paintings by the artists you like hanging on your walls well worry no more head on over to indiancolors.com Indian Colors is a company that licenses images of the finest modern art from some of the best artists in India and adapts them into objects of everyday use. These include wearable art like stoles and shrugs, home decor like cushion covers and table runners, and accessories like tote bags. This allows art lovers to actually get fine art into their homes at an accessible price, and artists get royalties on sales just like authors do. What's more, Indian Colors now has an exciting range of new products including fridge magnets with some stunning motifs and salad bowls and platters made of mango wood. Their artists include luminaries like Babu Xavier, Vasvo Xvasvo, Brinda Miller, Dilip Sharma, Shruti Nelson and Pradeep Mishra. They accept bulk orders for corporate and festival gifting, but even if you want to buy just for yourself or a friend, head on over to indiancolors.com. That's colors with an o u. 
And if you want a 20% discount, apply the code IVM20. That's IVM for IVM Podcast. IVM20 for a 20% discount at IndianColors.com. Welcome to the scene in the Unseen, Alexandra. Thank you, Amit. Such a treat to be here. So tell me about how you became a, a journalist. What drew you towards journalism? I had always had two twin passions. Uh, one of them was current affairs and the other one was writing. And for some strange reason, I never really thought to put them together until I was at university and I started working on this school paper. And I remember not being able to sleep the night before my first article, which was something very mundane and interesting, came out. And that's when I knew I was hooked. So where did you go from there? I started as an intern with Reuters in Buenos Aires. Uh, I was fascinated with Latin America and wanted to, to get going there. Uh, then went on to be a stringer for Reuters again in, in Chile, uh, just on the other side of the Andes where I did a lot of reporting on economics and mining and learned a lot more about how the world goes around, uh, but was frankly a little bored as a journalist. And then Venezuela came to the fore, and about four years ago I moved to Caracas. And what's the food chain of journalism like? Like you begin as an intern, then you're a stringer, then you're a full-fledged reporter. How does the job description change? What are the kind of things that you did on the job? Mm. So as an intern in Buenos Aires, I, I had the best of all worlds. Uh, I was able to go out and cover you know, fun, but also fundamental uh, events like the legalization of gay marriage in Argentina. And I wrote soft features on being a vegetarian in Buenos Aires, you know, the meat capital of the world. Uh, You're uh, a vegetarian? Yes, I am. Horror. <laughs> I've never been as happy as I am Welcome in India. Welcome to Mumbai. <laughs> yes, thank you. It's very refreshing after the barbecues of, of Latin America. Um, I'd trade places with you any day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, then if you're a meat lover, Argentina is, is the place. Uh, and, you know, as you go up the food chain as a stringer, I had a lot of responsibilities for somewhat mindless uh, tasks, like you know, at the time covering the stock, local stock market, running out to press conferences, learning the ropes, which is essential and, and is what you build on to become a better journalist. And and what are the sort of values that uh, you picked up in, uh, which you pick up in any good news organization um, uh, you know, like Reuters obviously is, in terms of the kind of journalism you do, what's the rigor that you have to follow? It's, it's incredibly rigorous. It's a fantastic school of, of journalism. It's it's daunting because you're learning on the spot and journalism in that sense is is much more of a of a craft uh, than something you, you learn within an established uh, school or institution. Uh, so you you learn to be rigorous with your facts. You learn to check with sources. You learn to question everything. Uh, you learn to be fair. Um, of course, all these issues are deeply philosophical and we can debate them at great length because there's no perfect recipe for it. But especially, I think, uh, as a foreign news outlet in countries where sometimes the local media is coward or or doesn't have the resources to cover something you know, as well as it would have otherwise, you become a frame of reference. So there's great responsibility on, on having smart, articulate, fair coverage. And, and, you know, one of the very clear demarcations in foreign media is... Um, the line between news and opinion, mm. and which is not so, which sometimes gets muddy in India. And you were, of course, a reporter all along. So, you know, how do you sort of get to that level of uh, objectivity where you sort of keep your feelings about what you're reporting out mm. of your reportage itself? Like, do you have to make a special effort to do that? Can you go too far? Um, I think you always have to be careful. I think in some ways it's easier when you're not reporting on your own country because you're more detached from the situation. But, you know, being fair isn't, it also entails portraying the situation accurately. Like one of the old adages in journalism is, 
if one person says it's raining outside, the other person says it's, you know, a beautiful, glorious day and you should go to the beach, your job isn't to portray both sides. Your job is to open the curtains and tell readers what's going on. Now, that's a clean-cut example. In the real world, it can get muddier than that. But I think trying to find the sweet spot between being fair to the different sides and ideas involved, but also, you know, not just being a robot who's throwing out the, the facts coming from different sides and actually assessing how the situation has evolved, how politicians or whoever's claims stake up to what they've actually done is, is in essence an essential part of our job. And in a sense, like you said, the example you gave is clear cut, but when it comes to something like covering a country like Venezuela, for example, uh, where the economics is very complicated, the politics mm -hmm. is very complicated, society is complicated, then does it involve a case of just having to learn a lot of things before you can even begin to report? I think so. But I think in a place like Venezuela, which essentially has become devoid of fact, it's very difficult to do that. I'll give you an example. I mean, Venezuela is, has rampant corruption. We know that is one of the fundamental reasons this government uh, has been so inept and, and has basically left Venezuela penniless. For a long time, it was very difficult for us to say that. Uh, we knew money was disappearing, but if you don't have the proof, you don't write it if you're a rigorous journalist. Of course, now there are multiple cases across the United States and in Europe where, you know, a, a single businessman has been accused and has pleaded guilty to embezzling, say, a billion dollars. That gives you an idea of the scale uh, of graft we're talking about. But for a long time, it can be frustrating because to be a rigorous reporter, you can't just throw around baseless claims. But that also means you're missing a fundamental part of the story that you're struggling to tell the readers. And I think that's the deepest frustration there can be. Yeah, because there must be times when you absolutely know something, but you cannot say it and, and you have to kind of get there from other places. So, so before you went to Venezuela, like, did you want to go to Venezuela or was it something that Reuters offered you the opportunity and then you looked into it and said, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> no, I had been fascinated uh, by Venezuela. I've mesmerized for a long time. I had gotten a student grant when I was at university to do a project on political street art there, as one does when one isn't kind of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed university student. And uh, I had spent two weeks in the country and, and had been reading obsessively ever since. But I was very deterred by the security situation there and never thought I could actually live there because it was too dangerous and scared me. Which, which year was this? I went there as a student in 2011. Okay. And, and moved there in 2014 mm -hmm. after going for a brief stint and seeing that I could live there, you know, despite the, the crime concerns. Mm. So when you started reporting in Venezuela, uh, how easy was access? Well, access on the street to people was wonderfully easy. I mean, Venezuelans are expansive, fun, Caribbean people who love to chat. Uh, so after Chile, which is a much kind of more dour, uh, closed society, it was a treat for me to just go out and be able to interview people in the supermarket lines and have them genuinely tell me about their lives and their, and their sufferings because they wanted to. They wanted to be heard and, and that's the way they are. Conversely, the government is is fairly shut off. At the time, we still had the occasional press conference. Uh, sometimes they would answer questions, but it was a kind of situation where GDP, inflation, crime data, emigration data, none of that was being published anymore. As you mentioned at the start of the podcast, I covered oil, and that meant covering the big omnipresent state oil company. I spent four years in Venezuela, and I genuinely don't think they ever answered one of my questions. You know, you have to, when you're writing a story, you send in a request for comment by phone or by email to give uh, the, the person concerned a chance to respond. And I never got a single answer to my emails. I mean, it's that kind of black hole situation you're talking about. So it forces you to be a kind of creative, enterprising reporter to get to the stories. But it always means you're missing a significant 
chunk of data and the government side. At the end of the day, it's it's self-defeating for the government because they, they don't speak out, right? Right, and, and uh, of course, distrust towards the media is an attitude that really came out much earlier from the time Chavez took over. Mm. Because like a lot of populists, he kind of uh, looked at the media as part of the elites and who were antagonistic to him. And he tried to sort of um, control communications and uh, all of that, parallels of which we see in many other countries. Um, so tell me a little bit about how Venezuela got here, you know, starting from before Maduro, like when you when Maduro was president, starting from maybe even before Chavez, like a lot of people lay the blame quite correctly for what's going on to the bad economic policies uh, in Chavez's time, mm -hmm. which have continued with Maduro. But Venezuela was uh, both oil rich and in deep trouble a lot before that. It's, mm. it's been a turbulent history. Tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, it's been a, a cycle of booms and busts, uh, basically, due to, due to the oil barrel. Uh, so Venezuela was, by some metrics, one of the richest countries in, in Latin America, where this elite that was filthy rich would travel to Miami and famously say, give me two of everything, it's so cheap. Uh, of course, that fueled a lot of inequality and, and discontent and a sense that the political establishment was basically two political parties that would rotate power through democratic elections, but rotate power amongst themselves wasn't representative. Uh, and there had been sporadic violence and, and turbulence in the country for a long time. And Chavez, who came from a poor family from the Savannah lowlands, really spoke to the people uh, who felt marginalized by the system. And because Venezuela is an oil-rich country, there's this idea that we are a rich country. We should not be poor. This something has gone wrong and something someone is to blame for it. And Chavez diagnosed that problem brilliantly, as many populists do, and was elected in, in 1998. Uh, there was immediate violent opposition to him from the elite in media and politics, etc., and that culminated in a series of marches in, in 2002 that led to a brief coup against him where he was deposed for three days. It remains a very complex, fiercely argued about episode about exactly what happened to him. Uh, ultimately, he was reinstated by military loyalists. And after that, some would say would became much more paranoid about any attempts against him and clamped down much more on institutions, the press and any opposition he could see. In fact, there are memorable reports uh, that uh, during the coup, he chatted with uh, a hero of his, Fidel Castro, on the phone. Mm. And Castro told him that, you know, whatever you do, you go, don't surrender. Mm. And it's interesting to me how, you know, obviously from 58 to 98, you had this sort of kleptocracy, this oligarchy of mm. these two parties, which kind of controlled the economy in the system of patronage where the mm -hmm. oil wealth was sort of, uh, uh, and, and which was also incredibly corrupt. And uh, Chavez detected that correctly and got to power. But what I always find kind of interesting is that for the first five or six years of his time, he professed himself to be non-ideological, where he said, I'm not a communist, mm. I'm not a capitalist, e even though, I mean, he uh, had communist influences. He was a big fan of Marx and uh, various other communist thinkers right from his student days. But, you know, he said, I believe in the third way, in, uh, mm. which was, you know, perhaps a reference to Tony Blair's third way. But... Either, but after 2002 and then 2004, what seemed to happen is that he hardened enormously and spoke about 21st century socialism and went in all the directions that uh, he went in. So do you think that sort of change in direction came from political imperatives? It's a very interesting question. I undoubtedly think that he felt very vulnerable after the coup and after being reinstated. And his instinct was to try to therefore control whatever he could. Uh, 
and the influence of Fidel Castro and other politicians led to him pushing for much more control over the economy, especially. And he enacted a series of policies that would really be the downfall of Venezuela, ultimately. Namely, imposing currency controls in 2003, which is what led to the mind, mind-boggling distortions uh, we see today in Venezuela that are to blame for, for much of the current crisis. And yes, I think he's a dominating personality and he was a dominating politician. He was a dominating president. His instinct was to control. Uh, yes. And that kind of became worse, A, because he's got Castro advising him on one side and on the other side. I mean, the reason I sort of thought of that was when I was kind of reading uh, through all of this, uh, one parallel that came to mind was our own earlier Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, who, uh, you know, took over the Congress Party mm-hmm. in the mid-60s, but she was uh, fighting against the established uh, order in her own party. And to distinguish herself from them, she took this populist socialist line and did a lot of things which uh, were economically disastrous, mm-hmm. but which uh, if you understand her political imperatives and a need to create a brand for herself and distinguish herself from them kind of uh, made sense. And, you know, the other part of, I mean, a lot about Chavez reminds me of Narendra Modi as well. And and the other part of uh, his rise to power and what happened when he got there was this kind of like a dog chasing a car and catching the car and not knowing what to do. <laughs> because uh, he was incredibly good at campaigning. He had no mm. idea whatsoever of how to govern. Interesting analogy. Yes, I mean, Chavez at heart was a showman, right? And he had the whole country or much of the country behind him. The masses loved him. It was like religious fervor going to his to his rallies. It was unlike anyone, anyone, anything anyone had seen in, before. Uh, and when you had that kind of... Uh, unquestioning love, uh, kind of his worst instincts were unleashed, right? And Venezuela was a democracy, but it didn't have entirely solid institutions. And when Chavez was in power from 1999 to 2013, he had plenty of time to dig away at them. Uh, But I think, yes, his instinct was always to campaign. And he would always boast we've had more elections than anywhere else in the world. How can you criticize us for not being a democracy? But that's what he reveled in, right? And that's that's what he loved, not the day-to-day nitty-gritty. And that tendency was exacerbated by the fact that during 10 years of his governance, you had an oil bonanza. So you didn't have to worry about the nitty-gritty. The oil money was just gushing in. And this happened because um, 9-11 happened and therefore the oil spigot uh, slowed down in the Middle East and Venezuela was suddenly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, much in demand. And also he kind of revived the OPEC at this time, right? Yes, yes, he was instrumental in that. And, and I think the fact that the oil prices shut up was the saving grace. I mean, politics is also about luck. And, and Chavez was an incredibly lucky politician. Uh, you know, obviously don't, don't want to be morbid, but for instance, he also happened to die right before the economy took a turn for the worst. Uh, so even his exit was, was perfectly timed in terms of his legacy for in the eyes of his supporters, right? In fact, just just looking through his career, I mean, there are various parts where he got so lucky. For example, he almost didn't get through into the army because he failed his chemistry mm-hmm. exam, right? And uh, had that not happened, the subsequent events wouldn't have worked out the way they did. That while in the army for years, he wanted to overthrow the government, not because he had anything against the government or any particular president, but mm. he just wanted to get to power. Mm. And he was planning a coup as administrations changed one by one. He's single-mindedly planning a coup for the sake of power itself. And... Uh, you know, even when he, you know, he attempted a coup in 1992 and he failed mm-hmm. and he would have disappeared into oblivion and into prison. He uh, had the powers that be not decided to put him on television so he could Absolutely. tell his co-conspirators to surrender. 
and he suddenly became a media star after that. Absolutely. He, I mean, he capitalized on those few minutes on television and said, we failed for ahora, for, for now, which became the slogan that everyone repeated. Uh, and then he was pardoned, of course, and got out and became a political figure in his own right. Uh, so yes, just uh, from the chemistry exam to, to being pardoned, it, it's the stars aligned for him. And, uh, and it's interesting how... Uh, you know, people close to him talk about how his personality changed so suddenly at two different parts of his life. One is, once he comes on television and he becomes a superstar, and he literally becomes a sex symbol. Women everywhere are mm. dying to have his baby, so to say, as one biographer <laughs> put it. And and the other, when he actually comes to power, that, you know, when he comes to power and he, you know, enters Mira Flores, I think the presidential palace, he just becomes a completely different person and his allies from the period before that eventually all get disillusioned one by one and move on. Mm-hmm. And he ends up surrounding himself with, with yes-men. And he ends up surrounding himself with yes-men. And, and, you know, if you look at Maduro uh, today, just, just reading the biographies of Chavez, the one thing that kind of struck me is that the only extraordinary thing about Maduro is that he never said no to Chavez, that he would just, he was almost like, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, again, Indra Gandhi said about a former president of ours, Gyani Zayal Singh, uh, before he became president, uh, that uh, if I ask him to clean my toilets, he will. And you get the same kind of sense about mm. uh, uh, sort of Chavez and Maduro. And and that's really the reason Maduro kind of uh, got to power to begin with. Yes. I mean, he describes himself as the son of Chavez. I mean, mm. He stakes his entire legacy on Chavez. Right. So again, extraordinary luck for Maduro as well. Tell me a little bit about the confluence of oil and politics through the decades uh, in uh, Venezuela. Like, obviously, they discover oil, they're very lucky. Then they come to these deals where, for example, these foreign companies first come and they start taking the oil and then they have these 50-50 arrangements where they get f- share share 50% mm-hmm. of the of profits with the state and then that tilts further to the state. And then it's Venezuela, which actually forms OPEC. So all the power goes to the sort of, uh, that actually pushes for the formation of OPEC. So all the power goes to the um, uh, the states rather than the companies. And then gradually that in the mid-70s leads to the formation of the state oil company, PVDSA. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about the role oil played in politics uh, through the decades. Yes, well, oil is is indistinguishable from, from Venezuela and the Venezuelan economy has always been hugely dependent on oil. Uh, you mentioned the Dutch disease and that impeded Venezuela from from having an, you know an, enough efficient industry and agriculture, although it did have those sectors in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but Chavez's big criticism was that the foreign companies were, were getting too sweet a deal in Venezuela under the former governments. And so very quickly when he comes to power, he understands that PDVSA, the state oil company, will be crucial to his fortunes. And in fact, the lead up to the coup, there is a, there's a strike by PDVSA workers and engineers against Chavez. So they bring the oil industry to a standstill, uh, which again shocks the oil market and, and is you know, completely uh, attacks the Venezuelan economy. And ultimately, as we know, Chavez prevails and he absolutely purges the state oil company. And so all these engineers who supported the opposition and walked off their jobs are fired. Uh, there's this huge turnover. A lot of these people incidentally ended up immigrating to Colombia or Canada and, and helping uh, basically create the Colombian oil industry, so benefiting other countries. And gradually, over time, PDVSA becomes a fiefdom for Chavismo. For a long time, it maintains you know, operational capacity, uh, even though it's highly indebted, 
uh, inefficient and corrupt, but it still kind of has the veneer of a functional company. Uh, but th throughout my, my time there, you just saw it clo close off. Uh, and in the last year, Maduro put a general in charge of the state oil company uh, because the military is absolutely the other kind of crucial part to understanding Venezuela. And generals have been sweetened by all these deals that Maduro's offered them, you know, mining stakes, control over imports, and the oil industry, which is the crown jewel, as a way of rewarding them for their loyalty and ensuring that they continue to be loyal to him. And it's led to an exodus of, of your low-level low workers who are already unable to eat three square meals a day because they're just earning a handful of dollars a month. Uh, of course, you know, any engineer or chemist uh, has fled because they're not earning anything more. They're often working in, in dangerous refineries that haven't had proper maintenance work in years and, and, and are a big threat. And it's also actually uh, very dangerous out in the oil fields because Venezuela, large parts of Venezuela are essentially lawless. And you're very exposed to theft and gangs looking to rob copper or rob you uh, in the oil installations. So the whole industry is completely unraveled, which is a huge threat for Maduro, given that more than 90% of the income the country comes from oil now because all the other industries have fallen by the wayside. Uh, and now, with the, the new sanctions from the Trump administration, it's getting even harder for him to export oil. So yet again, oil will be one of the big deciding factors in what happens in Venezuela. And, and uh, this process was... Like, it's common to all populists, really, that they attack the institutions in the countries which are supposed to act as checks and balances. And again, one of the things that Chavez did when he came to power is that he put military officers everywhere. Mm. So, you know, this whole trend of... Mm -hmm. uh, so even in the PDVSA after the strike happened and he laid off all the employees or whatever, he then put military officers in charge and completely changed the way the institution worked in terms of uh, sort of doing what people call petro-diplomacy where he would, uh, you know, offer sweet deals to neighboring countries mm -hmm. which had uh, communist leaders he was uh, uh, friendly with to get them on his side. And a large chunk of uh, petrodollars, therefore, started uh, going into this kind of diplomacy and doing special favors to people and so on and so forth. Exactly. Um, Cuba has been one of the big recipients of this petrodiplomacy. Uh, uh, you know, Venezuela still sends oil to Cuba and Cuba, quote-unquote, repays Venezuela by sending doctors uh, and other security personnel to the country in what you know, Maduro's critics say is a grossly unfair trade-off. And especially because it's fairly well known that Cuba then resells a lot of the oil it receives from Venezuela for profit. Which is a marvelously capitalistic thing for Cuba to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and let's talk about what happened to the currency, for example. So, mm -hmm. you know, one of the books you recommended I read uh, before uh, we do this podcast was Crude Nation by and that starts off with this fascinating chapter on how there are four currency rates, like three different official yes. currency rates for the dollars. And then there's another one, which is black market. Mm -hmm. And the top rate is like you pay a handful of bolivars for a dollar and and then you increasingly play more and more bolivars. And obviously your cronies and people you favor get them at the cheapest rate. And there's a whole industry where you're sort of, um, uh, you know, buying dollars in the cheap and selling dollars in the black market for far more money. Mm -hmm. uh, when you landed up there, how was it? How did you manage? Well, it's an extraordinary system uh, that that you end up being very agile in because you're always jumping b between different currency systems. But when I arrived, uh, first of all, your bank card doesn't work. No foreign cards work. You could take money out, but at an extraordinarily unfavorable rate. So you'd be getting a dollar 
out effectively getting a, what's worth a dollar on the black market, but spending maybe $50 for it yeah. in your bank account. So what someone like me or others get is a middleman, right? Who you wire money to from your bank account in abroad to his bank account abroad. And then he wires Bolivares from his account to your account in Venezuela. And that allows you to navigate the system. But it creates an enormous amount of, of distortions. So for instance, for a long time, foreign airlines priced their airfare in local currency, but at the pegged official rate. So that meant people could fly literally from Caracas to London for the equivalent of $40 if they were buying their currency on the black market, right? So it was a free-for-all. It was this bizarre, distorted party that people were taking care of. Of course, someone has to pick up the bill. And foreign airlines are now owed a total of about $4 billion because the Venezuelan government never then reimbursed them as promised. So that's the kind of distorted, magical realism side of it. The, the real world impact of it is that nothing worked, right? Because what you're supposed to trust, which is money, which has a certain value and creates trust and creates your chain, was completely distorted. Uh, so things just didn't function, right? You, importers wouldn't import because they didn't, they wouldn't have access to the official currency because that was reserved for croonies. And so had to go to the black market rate if they could afford it and then pass that cost on to customers. If not, they folded shop. Uh, so that was really the death blow to the Venezuelan economy, the, the incredible distortions in the currency. And then this uh, differing access to the dollar then creates different classes of people, right? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the Venezuelans have a lot of vernacular for what has happened in the last 10 years. And there's an expression, which is boliburgues. Okay. So it's a play on, on burguesia, so the bourgeoisie, and mm. boli being bolivariano, which mm. is this kind of following that Chavez created based on Simon Bolivar. So basically, these are the, the new rich, those who benefited from the government's largesse. The other term for them is enchufados, so those who are plugged in. So that's essentially what they are. They're plugged into the system, so they get dollars at a preferential rate. Their companies can be signed into the system to import food and get the juicy government contracts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And on that note of juicy government contracts, we'll take a quick commercial break, which I promise you will be filled by a private party. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another great week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We are IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. As I mentioned over the last couple of weeks, we've been running a survey on our website. It's at ivmpodcast.com slash survey. Please fill it out if you haven't already. And just so you guys know, there is a prize involved for the 25 people we will select at random, and we will send them an IVM Podcast mug. So this week on Cyrus Says, Cyrus's guest is Yash Panage, co-founder of Bombay Canteen and Opedro. He talks about the intricacies of the F&B industry in India and the origins of his ventures. On Geek Fruit, Tejas Dinkar and Janam talk about Netflix's latest series, Russian Doll, and why you should finish watching it right away. On Ganatantra, the hosts unpack how political violence works in India, and why the absence of large-scale communal riots does not necessarily indicate social harmony. On Dale Harate, the hosts are joined by Rama Prasad, who translated the Amaru Shataka, a collection of love poems from Sanskrit to Kannada. He talks about the immortal nature of this work. On Football Twaddle, the hosts discuss the Kepa and Sari incidents along with everything that happened in the Premier League. On the Habit Coach podcast, Ashton guides you through starting a sugarless life and the importance of substituting sugar with stevia. In the season finale of our Hindi show Cinemaya, Swati Bakshi is in conversation with Alankrita Srivastava, who discusses her journey from journalism to filmmaking and everything in between. And with that, let's continue with your show. Welcome back to The Scene and the Unseen. I'm chatting with Alexandra Ulmer about Venezuela. I mean, the other thing everybody sort of notices about Venezuela is mad inflation. Mm. You know, now is at crazy levels, but even under Chavez, it was at like 60% a year and it would balloon. And 
one of the things that I realized was one that inflation has been a common part of uh, uh, Venezuela for decades, uh, not mm. not just a, a Chavez issue. And uh, two, there's a quality which people often consider a cultural quality, but which really seemed to me to come out of economic imperatives in the sense that people often say that so-and-so kind of people or so-and-so culture, they are good savers. Mm. They like to save as if that's a cultural value. Mm. But what inflation did to Venezuela was because inflation was so high, it just made no rational sense to save. And Venezuelans would, I mean, taking debt makes, I mean, just to give an illustration of this, you could buy a house today at regular EMIs and a year later, your EMIs uh, would really be as much as you are paying to buy a loaf of bread. So it makes, so the the moment, uh, whatever debt you can get, people would take it, you know, so even the poorest people would take debt and buy flat screen TVs and whatever and spend it on consumer goods. And it's not because of materialism gone mad or consumerism or anything like that. It's just that um, uh, those are the economic incentives. So it's like culture mm-hmm. being driven by economics. Mm-hmm. And Latin Americans historically have not been considered good savers, but that's because they've almost every country has had some kind of uh, spate of, of inflation. Venezuela has pushed it to a whole other level, right? We're looking at 2 million percent, even though, as I mentioned, we don't have official government data. It's wild. And it's really the only thing people talk about because it is such a disorienting and life-destroying phenomenon. It destroys your salary. It's as if you walked into a supermarket tomorrow and a sack of rice was priced at 18,000 rupees. I mean, how can you talk about anything else? It's it's your livelihood. It's everything you thought was stable that is being cut out from under you. And what's particularly fascinating about this spate of hyperinflation is that it seems to be the first one of the digital age. So Venezuelan government can't even print enough physical money to keep up with the money it's creating in general. So there's a perennial shortage of bills. So prices are going up all the time, but no one has any physical money which is insane because it's not the kind of wheelbarrow image you have of, of hyperinflation, right? Um, so what does that mean? That means every ATM you walk in front of has ten, tens of people queuing up at any given time, hoping to get a few bills out, even though the maximum is about $2 uh, that you can take out of the ATM. Which you can't buy anything with. You can't buy anything with that, especially when prices are changing every day. So uh, you use your bank card. Wait, there's a catch there too. Venezuela hasn't invested in its telecom system and has, has fixed prices for years, so they're completely oversaturated. And so point of sales collapse all the time. They're also rolling blackouts because ditto, no investment, no maintenance. Uh, so the, the, the power grid is incredibly shaky. Uh, your phones, same issue. So there literally were times where I could not pay for something. I mean, I obviously had the money in my account. I wanted to pay for it, but nothing worked. I had no bills. Uh, the the power system was down, the point of sale didn't work, and, and there's just no way to conduct a very basic economic transaction. And just for my listeners' benefit to talk about the monetary basis of uh, inflation, what inflation is typically caused by is when the money supply goes up relative to the goods and services available. So what happens is when a government decides that it needs to up its spending or pay back its debts or whatever, and it starts printing money, the amount of money relative to goods and services just goes up, and therefore, you have more money chasing the same number of goods. So obviously, supply and demand, the goods and services out there become more expensive. And if you just keep indiscriminately printing money, this just gets worse and worse till it spirals to, um, you know, unmanageable proportions till, you know, what you used to buy a house with. One year later, you buy a loaf of bread with that. And uh, the poor are most 
heard by it. But what kind of surprises mm-hmm. me is that despite a lot of this happening for even the early, since the start of Chavez's uh, mm-hmm. regime in a sense, he had popular support for a much longer time than you would have. I mean, is that before, because people disconnect what is happening to them from the economic policies that a government carries out? I think what Chavez did masterfully was control the narrative, as mm-hmm. most successful politicians do. So he said that all the economic woes were to do with an economic war being waged against him and, and then Maduro, Maduro's government, right? So the evil businessmen are stockpiling goods. The evil businessmen are upping prices in a speculative manner to ruin your life, etc. And, you know, hyperinflation is an abstract concept, and it's not that easy to understand and if the government dominates the airwaves and you don't have a background in economics or perhaps, you know, not a background in, in anything because you weren't able to pursue your education, uh, it's actually much easier to blame a speculator. And once the situation became really difficult in Venezuela and we had, you know, th- those hundreds of people banging on supermarket doors, waiting, you know, demanding food, uh, which happened all the time, you had the creation of these uh, men called bachaqueros which is actually a name that derives from a, a little ant that can carry a lot on its back, uh, which is lovely poetry, but in, in practice was terrible, right? So these men who queue up, uh, buy up products that they then resell at a heightened price, right? Because not everyone can stand in line all day waiting for food. They have to get to work, and some of them do have disposable income to pay more. So it, it's a lot easier if you're poor, stuck in line for hours, waiting you know, to buy a pack of pasta, uh, and you see these bachaqueros slip in line in front of you, threaten you, buy up the products, and then you see those same products on your street corner the next day for five times the price, well, who's to blame? The bachaqueros, right? Of course, n- bachaqueros don't exist in countries where you have enough su- supply and you don't have controls, but that's harder to remember when you're in the thick of it and you want to survive. I'm speaking more about, about Maduro's time in, in this essence, but I think in Chavez it was similar. He dominated the narrative, and there was an incredibly polarized country, right? Where it was us against them. No, and also one thing all these guys fell prey to, uh, not just Maduro and Chavez, but even before that, is the temptation of price controls. Like you referred mm-hmm. to magical realism earlier, and price controls really are magical thinking. That if you fix the price of something, that's where it'll stay. But as we know, price controls lead to shortages. And then when you have uh, shortages, uh, mm-hmm. obviously the black market gets involved, uh, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. And a lot of the problem in Venezuela was, the way I understood it, was driven not just by the rampant inflation, but also then because inflation put the prices of goods out of reach of many people. Chavez and then Maduro reacted by Mm. imposing price controls, which completely changed the incentives for manufacturers who wouldn't manufacture anymore and the domestic manufacturing industry died anyway. And and therefore, goods became uh, extremely scarce. Exactly. It created a negative feedback loop where inflation would be up, the government would Know, panic and decide to take corrective measures. So Maduro would come on TV, as he does almost every day, because that's how he governs through the television, and announce a 35% wage increase uh, to tackle hyperinflation, for instance, which meant that in turn, everyone had to increase the prices of the goods or services they were offering. Because the wage increase came from basically he's printing money. Right? Exactly. And th- then the shop owners have to pay their employees more, right? right. And so then uh, they even had this, they still do have a superintendence of fair prices. Have inspectors that are sent out, often with a state TV camera trailing behind them, and they inspect the evil businessmen uh, and you know find them, arrest them, or whatever if they feel like they're price gouging. And so, of course, you know how do you sur- how does your business survive in those conditions? 
and and you have to raise prices and yet at the same time and you know another trend that i noticed which again uh, became much worse under chavez was expropriations where the government mm-hmm. would just say okay these private businesses are you know cannibals and we're just going to take mm-hmm. them over and you know there's one of this even happened live on television where he went to mm-hmm. the square in uh, caracas mm-hmm. and he asked the mayor mm-hmm. of that area with him that you know what is that shop and he points to one building and those are the jewelry stores and he says expropriate them and before the show is over the guy has bought the papers and he signed them and then in the middle of the night the store owners come to take the jewelry and cardboard boxes mm-hmm. and and you know then the reporter who wrote about this says that a year later there was absolutely i think this was rory gallagher in his book commandante mm-hmm. that a year later the building is just empty and there's absolutely nothing there and it's all gone to waste right so i think you're hitting on a very important point there because yes there were flawed policies in the maduro government and the chavez government and yes there was a lot of corruption but one of the main characteristics of their governance was just incompetence right because uh, there are ways of nationalizing compensating whoever was was nationalized and putting together a structure to keep that going but it this was just chavez on tv saying expropriado and there was no follow up and there was no attempt to really create a structure so this happened in factories in farms in jewelry stores just deserted abandoned uh and it's just so wasteful and heartbreaking So thing is is it then the case just thinking aloud that it's not even happening for ideological reasons which would be bad enough but just mm-hmm. out of Chavez's showmanship you know to create those kind of optics and to feed into his narrative that you know private guy bad and I'm your savior and I'm going to save you all you know I I had the distinct impression that everything at a, at a certain point of Venezuela was just being governed it was governance through television and that's not only because I had the unfortunate luck of being a journalist there meaning I had to watch state TV day in day out which killed my neurons but maduro comes on television every day to speak just like chavez did and that becomes you know a proxy for governance you know a flawed one of course that becomes the be all end all controlling the narrative and uh, how did kind of like chavez he seems to me like you pointed out he kind of uh, died treated by doctors in cuba mm. he died before um, uh, the oil prices fell and uh, you know but maduro effectively was following out the exactly the same kind of policies and what mm. has happened to maduro i imagine would have happened to uh Chavez but what was a kind of change that i mean and those are the years where uh you went to the story in and you know 2014 onwards you've been there yeah. and uh, so so what really happened take me through these last 5 years sure so maduro is very narrowly elected in a very controversial vote where the opposition still maintains it actually won um we're talking about the actual numbers around the whole vote of course as in the dogmor the elections were rigged basically yeah the tweaked that's mm-hmm. what the opposition claims uh undeniably the government you know used the state to its advantage so busing people in changing voting centers all sorts of dirty tricks but there's still a question as to whether the actual numbers were tweaked uh, so he gets elected with you know very slim majority and little little credibility as as you said he was a yes man to chavez a former bus driver and union leader who you know didn't have any grand vision of his own was at the time seen as quite a conciliatory uh figure who was able to negotiate and had been a fairly decent foreign minister in terms of his his approach to other heads of states but you know not cut out to be to be a president so he takes on the approach of chavez was loved i was designated to be his successor therefore i shall not tweak any of his policies and he stands firm you know backing these increasingly ludicrous and destructive policies as Venezuela's economy utterly unravels and there starts to be increasing pressure for look you have to devalue 
you have to let private investment in, you have to start to lift the currency controls, you have to increase gasoline prices, and Venezuela's the cheapest gasoline prices in the world, it's essentially free. Another one of the wild distortions of this magical realist place. But Maduro does not do any of that. So progressively, the situation just spirals entirely out of control. When I arrived in 2014, there were odd shortages, right? I'd go to the supermarket and I'd ask for coffee and they say, oh, no, we don't have any. And then this, I remember one security guard said, well, come back tomorrow. I think we're going to get a shipment tomorrow, you know, in kind of a conspiratorial whisper. Okay, so I came back the next day and I got my coffee, right? But over time, it became far more critical. And that's when you really started having people getting malnourished, people dying because of preventable diseases, uh, you know, like diphtheria returned because there were no, there was a shortage of vaccines and the health, the whole health system disintegrated. Uh, cancer patients couldn't find their oncological medicine anymore. Uh, even people who had successfully overcome things and like gotten a transplant for a failed organ and were living and happy couldn't suddenly couldn't find the medicine they needed to help their stop their organ from being rejected. Uh, so just the humanitarian crisis balloons and Maduro and his acolytes just dig in. Uh, essentially uh, ignore reality. Uh, they both ignore it and blame it on the opposition without ever kind of acknowledging how dramatic it's gotten. Uh, they undeniably live in a bubble. They limit, you know, their outside interaction with the people. It's, everything is very choreographed and stage managed. And, you know, it's gotten to a point of no return where it's so difficult to reform the economy now unless you have a major bailout because anything you would touch could be dynamite, right? If you lift currency controls now or something, it could just completely destabilize and wreck the country in the short term. And they don't have the economic know-how or the wherewithal to do that. Uh, so he's just dug himself into a complete hole. And and uh, and I believe there's a refugee crisis out of Venezuela, which people have compared uh, to Syria and said mm. it's actually worse. And anyone who can get out somehow, anyhow, is getting out because it's just not feasible anymore. Oh, yes. I mean, the initial wave happened during the Chavez era. When wealthy people, especially businessmen, said, this, this is not smelling right, I'm getting out. But they left, you know, they took a plane, they had their money, they settled in Miami or Madrid, you where, you know, and continued being doctors or engineers. It was sad, of course, but their life went on and, and they're doing well. But what happened under the Maduro government is the poor people suffered the worst. The poor and the middle class that got thrown into poverty because of hyperinflation and, uh, and the general economic situation. And initially, a lot of them left by by bus or short-haul flight to the rest of Latin America. But increasingly, what we're seeing is, is dirt-poor people just walking across Latin America to as far as they can, as far as their money will carry them. And how does the international community deal with this? Because there's also a wariness over time of interfering with other countries' private matters. And this is also a complicated area for someone like the U.S. to sort of uh, do something about because there is also this narrative about how uh, Chavez and Maduro after him are these great saviors of uh, communism and these neoliberals are, mm. you know, constantly interfering and they are to blame. Mm -hmm. uh, a narrative pushed to a large extent by Chavez himself and quite masterfully pushed, but obviously mm. utterly untrue. So how does how does the international community then deal with that? They have to be wary of responding, but at the same time when there is such a massive humanitarian crisis going on, it's hard to also say we will do nothing. Yes, I think that was a big quandary, especially for Latin America, where sensitivities to U.S. involvement are so high. And for most of Chavez's governance, the rest of South, or much of the rest of South America was also ruled by the left wing. It was very cozy with Chavez and in some instances possibly benefited from his oil largesse or just private funds for campaigns. So there's very muted criticism of him. 
Over time, that left, that pink tide, as it was called, has ebbed over Latin America with the commodities price crash. So now actually you have a string of right-wing governments. Still, there was wariness about confronting him directly. But the fact that so many migrants and refugees were spilling into Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Argentina, Chile, and because the situations deteriorated in terms of human rights and, and democracy so much in Venezuela, those countries have spoken out. But there is still this unease with having the U.S. lead the charge. And for a long time, at least uh, under Obama, the U.S. administration was pushing Mexico or Brazil, kind of regional powerhouses, to lead, to avoid having the U.S. be at the forefront um, because the U.S. has had a track record of, of supporting dictators or even coups in Latin America during the Cold War. And there's a huge amount of resentment against the United States for that. And, and that helps explain the rise of people like Chavez. Um, I think now, uh, because Latin America is, is dominated by the right, uh, and because there's so much sense of such urgency, they're all behind Trump. Yeah, and, and a lot of the resentment, of course, is uh, justified. And it takes me back to, you know, the old story about when Chavez comes to power, shortly after he comes to power, there's a massive earthquake and, uh, you know, uh, you know where uh, millions get affected. And the U.S. is, uh, and, the, and the, uh, the U.S. offers to send aid. Uh, Venezuela agrees the aid is on its way. And then in the middle of the night, Chavez calls the minister concerned and he says, tell them to go back. Mm. And the minister says, no, no, but they're already on their way and they're already, and we need the help. We can't do anything about it. And he says, no, no, I don't want the Americans here because, and he gets paranoid about, you know, they'll snoop on us and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And he gets them to go back. And there is speculation that maybe he spoke to Castro overnight and Castro told him to do that. But uh, whatever the mm. case may be. And, but, but the interesting thing through the Chavez years was, that although he kept ranting about George W. Bush in, in very funny and amusing ways, <laughs> I'm not going to quote any of that, but some great quotes there if you uh, uh, Google it. Although he kept ranting about uh, the imperialists and the neoliberals and the Americans and so on, uh, when it came to oil, it was business as usual. Uh, Venezuela was super efficient in uh, supplying uh, oil to the U.S., which was the biggest buyer. And, uh, you know, everything there went smoothly. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the bilateral relationship had ebbs and flows and, you know, the, the Chavez would kick out the U.S. ambassador and vice versa and, and Maduro likewise. But the oil kept flowing, right? And the U.S. was, uh, depending on what metric you use, the biggest cash-paying consumer, right? Because over time, uh, Venezuela ended up mortgaging its oil to Russia and China to pay back loans that they were receiving. Uh, so the U.S. Was, was of crucial importance. Those flows are now changing because of sanctions, and India actually is uh, about to be, is I think becoming or has become the number one cash buyer of Venezuelan oil. Ouch. Is this something we should feel bad about? <laughs> well, I mean, India is private companies importing, right? Yeah, so it's yeah, so. a, different, a different calculation. And I mean, this, everything leads to believe that Venezuela is offering nice discounts. Yeah. And uh, money is fungible. What's the politics in Venezuela like right now? Like, uh, you know, one interesting sort of... Uh, turning point in Venezuelan politics, which is easy to identify, and, and you mentioned it in our conversation before the podcast, was obviously the 2005 elections when, uh, uh, you know, there was this, uh, where uh, somebody reported that uh, voting is no longer anonymous, that you can you can find out who's kind of voted. And because of this, the entire opposition decided to boycott the elections. Mm. And, you know, Chavez basically swept the assembly seats, obviously, because his party was the only uh, uh, contender there. Uh, you know, did that have a long-term impact? Did the opposition recover from that and come back mm. strongly? And what's the situation today? Mm. So the Venezuelan opposition has long been elitist, very quarrelsome, dominated by a smattering of parties that no one's ever heard of abroad, but who love to fight amongst themselves. 
And their boycott of the 2005 vote essentially annulled them from the political scene and gave Chavez completely, complete blank check to do whatever he wanted because his party controlled the National Assembly. It also fit into this repeated, the opposition would repeatedly cry wolf before when it wasn't necessary, right? I, I mean, I think Chavez was clearly problematic for institutions from the start, but the opposition would be wildly exaggerating what was happening and lose credibility in the process. So by boycotting the elections and saying this wasn't a democracy and Chavez is a dictator, when I think a lot of political scientists would say he wasn't, he had autocratic tendency, but it wasn't a dictatorship. They actually facilitated his road to creating a much more authoritarian government. Um, over time, the opposition has done some soul searching. And Enrique Capriles, who was a two-time presidential candidate for the opposition, actually said no we cannot demonize Chavistas, Chavez supporters. Uh, we must talk to them, understand why they voted Chavez, and show them why we're the path forward. So he actually did crisscross the country and go into the slums and the poor villages and talk to people and, and won over a lot of them. Not enough to win the, the election. Again, we don't know exactly what happened. Maybe he won it. Maybe he won it. Uh, but he changed the narrative and, and kind of shook up what was used to be kind of a bastion of the the wealthy Caracas old families. But in the last few years, the government crackdown, the opposition has been much more ferocious. So, you know, you have exiled politicians in Washington and Colombia, in Europe, others who are in jail or under house arrest, or even one Freddy Guevara who's holed up in the Chilean embassy and has been holed up there for months, if not a year by now. Uh, so they've completely uh, chopped up the opposition and, and annulled political parties, annulled any kind of political movement they tried to create to unseat Maduro. Uh, and so it's very hard for them to, to articulate themselves now. So where do things stand now, as of today? Well, it's been, it's been a whirlwind since January. So Maduro was sworn in for his second term in January uh, after a very, again, a decried election where all the Western powers said this was a fraudulent vote. And everyone kind of expected it to be game over uh, after that. But then this new kind of fresh-faced opposition leader, Juan Guaido, who be had just become the head of the Venezuelan Congress, which is still led by the opposition. And uh, incidentally, he became head of the Congress because most of the people or many of the leaders in his party are either in exile, in prison, or holed up in the embassy. So he was kind of the last person standing. And no one expected him to become the face of the rejuvenated opposition. Uh, so... Juan Guaido, 35, swore himself in, um, citing the constitution, his constitutional right to do that, and declared himself president. And that just set uh, in motion a, a whole chain of events. The U.S. supported him. Other European countries and Latin American countries also recognized him. It sparked uh, a huge wave of protests. And we thought the Venezuelan people were kind of broken, right? Emigration was the way out. Uh, everyone has just lost hope that anything could ever change. And Almost overnight, it seems, that people took to the street with, with renewed hope. Uh, there was hope in the U.S. and amongst the opposition that the military would immediately defect and support Guaido. That did not happen. Uh, the military in Venezuela is essentially an extension of the government. that has control over whatever lucrative business is left in the country. Plan B was to try to force in humanitarian aid. So we had a standoff at the Colombian border uh, a few days ago where yeah, the opposition tried to drive in these, these trucks filled with food and the Venezuelan soldiers blocked them and there were confrontation, tear gas and Molotov cocktails, etc. But it failed. There was a number of defections, an increasing number of defections from rank and file soldiers. So I think we're at about over 500 now. 
which is interesting, and it's increasing every day. It's not a ground swell, and we're not talking about the big fish, but it's something to monitor. Guaido left Venezuela to, to see the aid through from Colombia and is now in Brazil, meeting the president there. He's vowed to come back to Venezuela, but Maduro has said, there was a travel ban on you. If you return, you shall be detained. So there's a big question there and possibly a looming confrontation. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the political scientist A.O. Hirschman once said that if you're dissatisfied with the government, you have three options, which are you comply, you complain, or you leave. And when I first heard that quote, I thought, okay, no one's going to leave. Who can leave? You know, but now what's happening is that there are people who have simply no option. They cannot comply because they do not have food and there's no point complaining. So they're leaving and it's just, and, and this is again, like you said, is the poorest of the poor. So it's it's uh, a kind of a, a ludicrous situation. Going forward for Venezuela then, given the state of the politics and the state of the economy, what's a best case scenario and what's a worst case scenario in your view? I mean, it's kind of difficult for me to pine as a journalist, but I would say that because a majority of people seem to want elections and there are significant doubts about the previous election, uh, the ideal scenario for many people would probably be to hold fair and just elections where the people can actually express their desire. Um, that is highly unlikely to happen. There are many worst case scenarios. Uh, it's hard to say which is worst. Venezuela has constantly defied expectations of how bad it can get. And unfortunately, I have no qualm. I have no, uh, I know it can get worse. I think what's most worried me is how lawless it can become. In many ways, of course, the government is autocratic, but it also doesn't have control over many of the factions that rule the country, the gangs, the crime rings, uh, and then just the kind of isolated rural areas where there's, there's no state, there's no infrastructure, there are no services, and just nothing works. Nothing works. You can't make a phone call. You can't buy food. You can't transfer money. You can't get on the internet. You can't wash your clothes. There's no water. You can't turn on the light switch. I mean, we're just talking about a complete collapse in every single way. Sounds like Afghanistan at its worst, with the exception that this is a country that has enough oil to last it for more than 300 years. This is <sighs> this country should be insanely rich. Absolutely. And and, and it's also a tropical country. The, you know, the vegetation is somewhat similar to, to Mumbai, actually. So it's so incongruent to see people who are famished, who show you their ID cards and you can't recognize them because they were so plump four years ago and now are just a shadow of themselves. And they're climbing up trees to try to get mangoes, right? Because this is a bountiful country. And thank God, because otherwise people would have, you know, be even more in, in even more dire straits. And I'm not excusing, you know, hunger in, in deserts or in Siberia or what have you, but it's just so shocking to see that in a country that is actually very fertile and, and where bananas and mangoes and coconuts are growing wildly on every corner. Blessed by nature and cursed by humans. Yes. So this has been a very illuminating episode, but I'm going to end it by asking a question that kind of takes a step back. I mean, in the current times that we live in, there obviously is an uh, upsurge of populism all across the world. In fact, um, uh, you know, just reading the biographies of Chavez, uh, it struck me in how many ways he's common to the likes of Modi, Erdogan, Orban. I mean, there are so many commonalities. And one phrase I came across again and again, which I thought was a lovely phrase, was Chavismo. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about Chavismo and tell me a little bit about Chavismo, not just in a Venezuelan context, but Chavismo in a global context. And do you think, you know, why do you think it's there and what can be done about it by people who are concerned about it? 
Mm. To be fair, I think Chavismo at its at its best and at its heart was a dream of a people to have justice, to reap the rewards of this bountiful country, and to right past wrongs. But that's a rhetorical thing. Yes. Yes, but people really fervently believe that. And and as I mentioned, they kind of believe it as a religion. So I remember speaking to a social worker who says, how can I unteach my children? This is what I believe. It's like a religion for me. It's so deeply ingrained that it's almost like severing part of yourself to stop believing or to to finally you know, face the writing on the wall. Um, what it turned out to be is uh, an obscene level of, of patronage, cronyism, and perhaps uh, you know, a, a massive money laundering and, and drug, uh, drug trading operation. Like all religions or false religions. Well, I think in, in uh, yes, in its I'm essence, sorry, absolutely. Sorry, that's my view. I, I want to. Uh, I mean, it, it's com- it's strayed so dramatically mm-hmm. from the rhetoric of Chavez in the early days that it's it, it's it, yeah, it's absolutely shocking. I've wrestled for a long time with what the global implications are for this because Venezuela is such a one-off. It seems in many ways, of course, it's a cautionary tale in terms of squandering oil wealth or following for for populist you know, sellers of dreams, but it's also push things to such an extreme that it's sometimes hard to extrapolate. Uh, but yes, I think certain you know, certain themes, certain boring but fundamental themes like fiscal responsibility and the importance of institutions come to mind. Uh, as trite as that is, you never s- realize their value more than when all of that is crumbling. Alexandra, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed listening to the show, do follow Alexandra on Twitter at Alexandra Ulmer. That's A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-A-U-L-M-E-R. You should also follow Reuters Venezuela at Reuters V-Z-L-A. That's Reuters V-Z-L-A. You can follow me on Twitter at Amit Varma, A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. You can browse past episodes of The Scene and the Unseen at sceneunseen.in and thinkpragati.com. Thank you for listening. What do you think about starting a dating podcast? Uh, to be honest, I think that idea is kind of garbage. Sure, just like dating then. Oh, we could call it dating is garbage. Uh, we could talk to people about their sad dating lives. Okay, I'm not so sure about that. And we can discuss our terrible sex lives. Okay, definitely not that. We could talk about how there's no such thing as love and it's all a load of crap and nothing can ever truly bring meaning to our lives. Okay, you might need some help there. All right, it's a yes then. Dating is Garbage. Every week, we break down all things from dating apps, social media, texting, calling, dating rules, and more with some really cool people. Episodes out every Thursday on the IVM Podcasts app or wherever you get your podcasts. The most engaging and the most useful conversations you may have in your life are likely to be with your most challenging customers. Hi, I'm Ambi Parmeshwaran, and on this podcast, I will take you through my book, Sponge leadership lessons I learned from my clients. Packed with real stories about real people. But most of all, packed with the innumerable lessons I soaked up from some of the most iconic business leaders like Ratan Tata, Azim Premji, S. Ramadurai, Karsanbhai Patel, M. Damodaran, Dr. Kurian, and many more. Don't forget to tune in to the Sponge Podcast. Keep sponging to keep learning.